That was a great dinner. So great. Wait, where'd you park the car? Oh, the one I just sold at Carvana. What? When did you do that? When you were still looking at the menu. I went on Carvana.com and all I had to do was enter the license plate or VIN, answer a few questions, and got a real offer in seconds. They picked up the car already? No, I parked around the corner. But they are picking it up tomorrow and paying me right on the spot. Oh, no wonder you picked up the check. Yeah, about that. Uh, thought we were going halfsies. Sell your car to Carvana. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to get a real offer in seconds. Welcome back to Humans of Purpose. I'm your host, Mike Davis, and each week I bring you conversations with local purpose-driven leaders. Leaders creating social impact through their work and inspiring positive social change across a wide variety of sectors. Sit back, tune in, and enjoy the next 40 minutes guaranteed to inspire you with our signature blend of wisdom, experience, and banter. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. Australia's productivity is one of the, you know, the hot topics of governments. It's um, and certainly corporate Australia is wanting to, you know, maximise productivity. If we continue to design work that actually ignores what we socially and psychologically need, we're never going to get the maximum, um, and it's never going to lead to optimal uh, mental health and wellbeing. So for me. There's got to be the, you know, the cognitive stop, pause, think, reflect. What are we trying to achieve here? Yeah. And how do we go about doing that? Great to be back with you here, as always. I want to start by expressing my gratitude for our recent promotional package clients and new Supercast members who have really helped us fast track the move to podcast sustainability. Following our brand refresh, we've now updated our promotional package prospectus, which you'll find in our show notes and on our website at humansofpurpose.com. Our promotional packages enable values-aligned people and organisations to reach our growing listener audience, translating to over 10,000 episode listens per month in Australia and globally, as well as our growing social media community. This is the chance to connect with our wonderful socially conscious audience, of whom 76% are between 25 and 44 years old, and around 70% are also senior professionals in their field. We limit these promotional spots to 10 out of 50 each year to fund the podcast, and have just a few spots remaining for the year. You can learn more about this limited opportunity and get in touch via the show notes. As a keen listener, if you want a bit more Humans of Purpose every week, now is a great time to become a member, with 30% off our monthly and annual memberships happening until the end of winter. With membership, you'll get every episode ad-free, a bonus audio note with each guest, full transcript of each episode, as well as my top five insights and takeaways from each episode, and more. Check out the link in our show notes. We're proud to be sponsored by the wonderful folk at Neon Treehouse, who are still the best digital agency on the planet Earth. You can learn more about their fantastic work via our show notes. This week, I'm thrilled to welcome Mar- Margot Leiden to the podcast. Margot has been the CEO of Superfriend for over 12 years and is now acting as Chief Mental Health Advisor as she transitions to a new opportunity in the workplace mental health advisory space. Superfriend advocates for, equips, and empowers profit-to-member superannuation funds and insurers to achieve mentally healthy workplaces for their staff and members. I love learning about the journey to starting Superfriend and the significant impact its work programs have had over the years in shaping how all sectors respond to workplace mental health and well-being. It was also really interesting to learn about how innovative and unique the concept and structure behind Superfriend is. Hope you enjoy my conversation with Margot as much as I did. Well, Margot, I am thrilled to have you here. Thanks so much for joining me on this uh, wet and frosty morning. It's absolutely amazing to be here and I just love this setup, this incredible uh, community that is working together in this space. It's just terrific. We're going to give a quick shout out to the commons and the positivity that it brings us on such mornings. Yes, absolutely. And all the, <laughs> the beautiful plants that are around that always always makes us smile. Uh, I was loving earlier hearing about your um, your special project of the bonding between uh, young cats and dogs because uh, I didn't know that mini labradoodles and cats could get along so well. Oh, look, it's uh, I think the glue in my little family of furry ones is, is very much Paddington who's an um, eight-month-old kitten and he is true to name. He eats marmalade toast and he's klutzy as and <laughs> just hilarious. So he and, and my little uh, labradoodle puppy get on like a house on fire and Willoughby, the older cat, um, also just, you know, gets in the mix of it all too. So, yeah, no, they're good mates. Excellent name choices. Um, do you ever feel like you have a connection to people who also have mini Labradoodles? Is there like a bit of a vibe you get? Oh, 
look, I think people who um, who like animals is the vibe I get um, that I love. So one of the things that uh, we did have done for many years at Superfriend is had you know have bring your dog to work day, and um, you know when we were back in the office on a full time basis, it was terrific to meet clients or customers at the door, and um, you know there's a dog beside you um, as they step out of the lift, and you know to see their faces light up and just go wow, you know there's a dog here. Um, I think uh, people who you know who do have an aff- affiliation to animals, um, whatever they are, whether they're rabbits or horses or whatever, uh, I think are people who, you know, are connected to planet um, and uh, what matters in relationships. What do you think happens when there's a dog in the workplace? Because for me, it's a really interesting sort of effect where um, a lot of maybe the arched back and shoulders sort of disappear. You see a bit of shoulder slump, you see more smiles, you see a little bit more presentness. Well, I certainly know when a dog arrives in the super friend office, I'm down on my hands and knees um, on the floor. So um, I think I can attest to the fact that they absolutely do decrease uh, stresses um, within a workplace. They do enable people to take a deep breath, relax, um, have a different perspective on work and workplaces. Uh, and they're a wonderful way for people to bond because typically what tum- tumbles out of the wonderful stories about labradoodles or kittens and, and labradoodles or whatever it might be. So, uh, yeah, I think that the uh, the science is well and truly evidenced uh, that animals in the workplace, um, provided that you manage, you know, who's coming and going, so you don't have any yep. fracas relationships. Um, but you need a um, dog roster. You kind of do, yep. Uh, but, you know, we regularly post, um, particularly with people working from home um, a little bit more often uh, because of COVID, we regularly post photographs of animals um, in our team chats and it always creates that connection across the organisation. Yeah, I think animals and babies is just great for morale, yeah. generally speaking. I mean, if you don't like a, a baby or an animal, I mean, you know... You know. <laughs> be a bit of a weird character. <laughs> anyway, moving right along, um, I am happy to have you here. I'm, I want to just hear a little bit about your journey and um, why mental health matters to you. So my journey starts over two decades ago, which sounds like a long time ago, and it is, but it feels like it's been momentary. Um, and that is, um, I came to Melbourne to uh, assist a startup organisation that was really approaching working with people with eating disorders. So this is anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, ednos, and, and so on, um, from a very holistic and person-centred approach. Um, it was a private outpatient facility called the Oak House, unfortunately no longer is in existence. But what I learned coming in as their business manager, so I was running the finance and taking the garbage out and doing our client inquiry calls and a whole range of hands-on, uh, small businessy kind of stuff. What I learned from that time was people who are facing into severe and complex mental health conditions and their family and friends of, of choice, including their puppy dogs and pussycats, um, really need people to listen, people to support, people to be able to give particularly the carers practical things to do that actually make a real difference. Um, Hence, I'm not a massive fan of fact sheets. Fact sheets don't actually lead to behaviour change. Yes, they can lead to increased understanding and Uh, awareness. Like fact sheets as in sort of like brochures? Yeah, about, you know, these are the um, typical symptoms of anorexia nervosa as an example. Um, What I found during that 10 years at the Oak House was that people actually really benefit from a hug, from empathy, from somebody to listen and walk alongside them in their journey of recovery. And that set me, I guess, on the journey of um, wanting to make a difference in in people's lives. Um, Having had my own mental health uh, experiences from a pretty young age, and I will say, you know, fairly mild um, experiences, um, seeing people who are facing into severe and complex mental health conditions such as eating disorders um, recover and and really, you know, bring that spirit of life and, and humanity to, to the fore. Um, you know, I was only reflecting the other day that one of the joyous moments is seeing a client walk back in the door carrying a baby in their arms. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, having recovered, having got married, having, you know, got out and got a job and, and having a thriving career and making, you know, making the opportunities that of to contribute with life um, is just just joyous to see. And I think that was one of the great things about the Oak House was that we had wonderful recovery rates. Um, 
and it set me on this journey. So for me, my journey has been from working at the treatment end of the spectrum, um, not as a clinician, I'm not clinically trained, but as a human who's willing to learn, willing to listen, willing to walk alongside people with empathy and support and compassion and practical support to stepping into Superfriend, another startup organisation, that was very much at the, as we worked it out, at the prevention end of the spectrum. So Mm. going from sort of one end of the treatment clinical end to how do we actually help people stay well? How do we help people thrive if they're thriving? How do they stay there? Um, But very importantly also, how do we prevent people from um, developing symptoms of poor mental health or symptoms of mental health conditions and developing a a mental health condition? this is sort of like pre-prevention talk almost. Yeah, it's... um, Like factors of quality of good lifestyle. Yes, and, and so because mental health is a complex construct and workplace mental health is a complex construct. There are moving dynamic, moving parts all um, all the time. And I think workplaces are a fantastic um, setting in which we can actually help people be healthier at the end of the day than when they walked in the door. Love it. I think it's really well said. And how does that factor into this sort of hybrid mode of working? I, I suspect you knew I was going to ask this, but when the workplace sort of becomes... Um, everywhere, as does home, kind of, and it's just this mishmash. Um, is workplace um, thriving still as important as general thriving? Is it different? Look, I think it is incredibly important and it's interrelated. You can't be thriving at work and not in your own personal home life yeah. um, and vice versa. One of the great things um, that has come out of our indicators of a thriving workplace, which is Australia's largest workplace mental health and wellbeing survey that we run annually over 10,000 Australian workers, and it's a representative sample of the Australian working population. One of the great things that came out of that when we asked the question around thriving and productivity and hybrid and working from home or working in the office is that people, and this is self-reported, but people instinctively know that uh, where where they are most productive and where their well-being is is highest or, yep. or more optimal. So if you're a um, you know thrive in the office, you need people around you. You like the noise. You like the you know the the you're activity. You're describing me basically right now. <laughs> yeah. Um, then your well-being is going to be higher and your productivity will be higher. Mm. Likewise, if you're a bit more like me, which is more at the introvert end of the spectrum. Mm. I actually benefit from having quiet. I benefit from having solo time, reflective time to think and to to work uninterrupted. And I'm much more productive in that space. And likewise, there is, you know, people who are in the middle who like a bit of both. Yep. So what we've seen from the data is that if you enable people to reflect on where they like to work, what's the environmental factors that go into creating the most optimal well-being and optimal productivity, if you're able to have that flexibility and in the choice of your work, then you're going to get the very best out of people. What I will say, though, is that we cannot stop um, or we cannot um, not create those connections. We as human beings need to connect with other human beings, yes. even if we're even if we're introverts. You know, yep. we still need to have those relationships, and work is really important mm. to have those relationships. So we do need to come together on. Um, you know, on a fairly frequent basis, we need to build relationships, we need, need to build connections. And this is particularly important for younger people entering the workforce who don't have those business connections or yep. networks to support them and enable them to hear vicariously what's actually going on and to learn vicariously what's going on from the conversations happening around them. So the challenge for any organisation at the moment looking at do we force people back to the office, do we mandate, yep. you know, you've got to do this, we've got to recognise there are some work uh, and workplaces where that, that's not an option. It's, you know, construction is one of them. You've got to be there. You've got to be there. Um, but what I would encourage other organisations who do have that option is to really engage with your people to talk about why do we need to be back in the office? What's that purpose and meaning that we're going yeah, to create by being why. together? And then design the returning to the office and the supports in being around uh, in the workplace that actually deliver that optimal well-being and the optimal productivity. Uh, So it's much, to me, it's a much um, better proposition to look at 
why do we need to come together? Yeah, I agree. You know, I think um, from my perspective, I find that I do get a lot of energy, creativity and inspiration from being around other colleagues um, and people generally. But I also think that there's, you know, some people have a really strong tendency to just um, make it work for them. So, and that could mean just never coming to the office again. And then workplaces have this real struggle now. It's like, what is the right amount of time people should be at work versus not? Do we have a uniform policy across the board? Um, as you said, uh, you know, I sort of almost put this in inverted commas, like how do we force people back to the office? Well, it kind of, it, it is inverted commas. It's kind of like you are trying to, a lot of places in a way are trying to compel that kind of standard, are we committing two or three days? But I think what I'm hearing from you is it's much more of a reflective kind of understanding the underlying reasons and how it ties into your team's motivation and purpose. Yeah, absolutely. I think the other uh, element that I would suggest is that we have as a society celebrated the more of the extrovert. Um, you know, people who are, you know, gregarious and, and confident and often funny and really good at social skills. And, you know, we really have a world that celebrates the extrovert. And yet, you know, very many of us are introverts and we actually do benefit from having the quieter uh, time to reflect. And often introverts who do have solo time are far more creative as a result. So the whole, you know, post-it note, whiteboarding, you know, brainstorming, <laughs> all of those sort of things doesn't necessarily create the innovation and the productivity and the creativity um, that can be derived from people who are having, um, you know, solo time. I've recently read an amazing book and, and I'd certainly encourage people to read it and it's um, a book called Quiet by Susan Cain. I was just about to reference and, that book. Yeah. I'm really happy you raised it. Um, and it's amazing. It's a really great insight to recognise that we, we've we got to design work and create the opportunities that really celebrate diversity, diversity in the way we learn, yep. diversity in the way that we work um, so that we can get the best pe- yeah, best out of uh, the workforce that we have. Australia's productivity is one of the, you know, the hot topics of governments It's um, and certainly corporate Australia is wanting to, you know, maximise productivity. If we continue to design work that actually ignores what we socially and psychologically need, we're never going to get the maximum um, and it's never going to lead to optimal uh, mental health and wellbeing. So for me, there's got to be the, you know, the cognitive stop, pause, think, reflect, what are we trying to achieve here and how do we go about doing that? And it seems like there has to be many levers to be pulled but also very forcefully to change the kind of way of thinking that's that okay, we need productivity, but we're also not willing to change things dramatically to recognise that that approach matters? Yeah, I think this is where, um, you know, balancing the head and the heart um, in our decision-making is really important. If we just go straight after the productivity, this feels like you're just going to squeeze more out of me. It's, you know, how many more widgets, how many more hours, um, and that is not what optimal productivity is about. This is about people being in flow. This is about people um, really engaging with the work that they're doing and bringing all of them themselves and their strengths and their capability to the outcomes um, and being, you know, people who are working collab- collectively together to achieve the purpose and the vision of the organisation. Um, but we can't ignore the well-being elements of it all. So to me, the head and the heart decisions that we need to be making at this point in time in 2022 for the future of our workforce and our people need to toggle between the two. And we actually make better decisions when we do toggle between the two. That's really fascinating. Uh, Before we um, get down the rabbit hole further, I would like to come back to how you think about thriving as a concept. Why is it important? I hear it a lot in the sort of... um, the lexicon and terminology around optimal workplace well-being and also personal well-being. What does it mean for you? There's two elements to thriving. At an individual level, for me, and I'll t- talk about it in a workplace setting, but for me at an individual level, it's about me coming to work, bringing my best self to work, being able to utilise my strengths and my talents, but go home in a bunny rabbit, inverted ears, co- uh, commas, um, go home with energy to spare. So it is about an individual's being well supported to have the optimal uh, opportunity to to thrive at work. From a workplace perspective, 
It's about the well-being and productivity balance being right. So how do you help a, a business or an organisation um, be thriving? And thriving for a business in today's world is not just about profit to shareholders or return to whoever. Investors, um, yep. It is very much around what is your genuine contribution to this planet, what is your genuine contribution to your people, mm. and what is your genuine contribution to your community. So this so notion... stakeholder returns approach. It is, but it's also this shared value approach shared value, yep. uh, where your business is able to lean in and support, if not address, social issues profitably. Well, can you, let's flip this on its head or try and separate it out a bit. Is it possible to have a thriving organisation that doesn't have a thriving workforce? No, not at all. What, if, what if it's very profitable? It's still not thriving yeah. um, because you're burning people, you will be harming people, you'll be no doubt experiencing work cover claims, you'll have people um, whose absence um, is higher than it ordinarily, you'll have turnover, uh, so you'll have a huge number of costs. Um, I would also suggest to you you won't be actually getting the innovation and creativity and the opportunity for people's um, strengths to be maximised and well used at work um, to to generate thriving. So I, I don't even think that it's possible to get a thriving score um, in the way that we measure thriving um, and, um, and not have a thriving workforce. That's really well said. So you've done so much research. I mean, your research has been foundational. It's led to great advocacy and policy outcomes. Um, I wonder what some of the biggest things you've learned about how do we design a, a workplace that's more conducive to better mental health and hopefully thriving. I think there are a number of factors. One is the really important role leadership plays. Um, Australia typically scores really well in connectedness. I mean, that's kind of our mateship kind of... Yeah, um, g'day, mate. Yep, that's the one. Um, Come give me a hug, mate. <laughs> <laughs> but we we actually need to uh, continue to invest in people skill leadership capability. One of the greatest indicators that we have to creating a thriving workplace is ensuring that good quality skills-based training in mental health and wellbeing is actually applied across an organisation to all of the people leaders, so not only senior leaders but middle managers, anyone who's responsible or accountable for people leadership should be on a regular basis, and I'm talking annually, receiving skills-based training in mental health and wellbeing. Um we know that's a game changer. It has a ripple on the pond effect to decrease stigma. It opens conversations about people sticking their hand up safely to say, hey, I'm not coping okay. Yep. Uh, it leads to much better engagement and connectedness across the organisation. Um, the policy environment also then typically takes a broader lens of that head and heart, The what is the well-being impacts of this policy, yep. not just what is the business impacts of this policy. So we see that it has a massive ripple on the pond effect. So that is certainly something that I strongly believe that workplaces can do. There, It's within their domain of control. One of the other um, insights that I think has been really fascinating is just seeing year on year on year on year, um, people who are engaged in work on a casual basis, and so this is our gig economy workers and casual workers, getting further from thriving yeah, um, yeah. than their part-time or full-time colleagues. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me at all. Um, and yet our world is working towards, um, you know, more and more people working on a casual or, a, um, you know, a, a work work contract that uh, isn't secure. Yeah, um, I think the, the gig economy has been largely exposed for what it is. Um, it's a collection of different things that are kind of working desperately to help people make ends meet, but the way it's sold in a lot of these promos and sort of, you know, uh, live life on your own terms kind of rubbish is sort of yeah. not as cogent. Yeah, we as humans need some levels of security and yeah. safety and, and consistency and, and consistency yeah. exactly. Um, and what we hear through the uh, verbatims of from the indicators of a thriving workplace is that casual workers often are left out of team meetings or often not communicated about major changes happening within a workplace. Mm -hmm. Don't receive education and training and development. Mm -hmm. uh, these are all you know things that are really important to our well-being. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of work I think we can be doing in really thinking about before we put somebody into a job. How do we design that job? How do we create a job that? Um, isn't too spread too thin, isn't broad, um, is actually really appropriate for 
what we're asking somebody to do, and then how are we going to engage or contract that person mm-hmm. to do the job. So that's also one of the other key learnings from from the survey. And the third one for me um, is very much around just the opportunities that we've seen with organisations and industries actually investing in workplace mental health mm. and how that has actually propelled them forward. So um, having run the survey now for six years and seen, you know, often the bottom three or, um, three industries you know, the same in the same three to five industries at the bottom. Um, transport, um, postal and warehousing is, is one. And a few years ago, Healthy Heads and Trucks and Sheds came about um, as an industry response to this data um, and the recognition that they were hearing from their people on the ground, just the impacts of poor mental health and mental illness, um, suicide mm. uh, and so on. So, For me, this is my favourite kind of data set because it's a data set that people can use to drive change themselves or to drive broader policy change. Exactly. So this is, for me, um, one of the things I'm most excited about in terms of your work is I would say that... Um, you know, I think there are a few levels of quality when it comes to um, research. And I think one of the most important things, especially in the modern era, is how translatable it is. And it sounds like what you're doing, and particularly with your new path as well, is sort of so much around, you know, you've got all these learnings and insights, you know, really big sample, really robust quality. Now um, the rubber hits the road. So how do we convert this to the outcomes that we're expecting to see? It's so exciting. It is, and I think it stems back to when we actually designed uh, the indicators of a thriving workplace. We we used the positive sciences, so we framed the questions in much more actionable insights or actionable questions, rather than um, you know a, a statement that's almost through a risk lens. Mm. Uh, so when we talk about an integrated approach to workplace mental health, there's three components to it. One is the protection um, and and keeping, you know, people safe, so protecting harm, and that's largely under the Work Health and Safety Act and mm-hmm. the legislative requirements under the law. Um Acting if somebody is unwell. So if you're in, you know, if you're suspecting or, or seeing somebody not coping, you know, you do have an obligation at, at work to actually support somebody who is unwell, mm. and that is also under the law. But the third, which is the really exciting new science area, is promoting the positive, mm. and that's not only promoting the positive aspects from an individual perspective, but from the organisational perspective. Yep. And I'll talk about that in a moment. But those three elements, which are not very hard to do, mm. collectively and, and from an integrated perspective actually can enable an organisation to review its policies, look at its leadership training, look at what it's doing to support people. And I see um, when organisations lean in and have a, 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 um, a framework like this, which is evidence-based and the latest thinking, um, very much, and applying it in a practical sense to their workplace, then you get things like the actionable insights being able to fit forward into um, this, you know, world-renowned and and this great framework. So one of the things I love about the indicators of a thriving workplace and the the work that we've now done in developing a thriving workplace index tool, which businesses can use to measure and benchmark, is that actionable, measurable, as measurable well. but positively framed, you know, the what's possible, how might we um, generating uh, much more neurologically opening up our brains to creative and innovative ideas versus how do we mitigate this, how do we stop this, how do we, um, you know, minimise this. And that's not to say that risk management isn't important. It is critical. It's under the law. We have to do it. But I think often what happens is if we just focus in on a how do we um, eliminate this risk or how do we stop this risk we and we don't ask the question of how might we or what you know what's possible here yeah. we're missing an opportunity of bringing the scientific evidence mm-hmm. and practice of, of positivity into addressing a very serious obviously serious issue yeah uh, across some of the root cause factors yeah. I mean I just for me it's such an interesting shared value kind of argument it's almost like um, we should do things that help people thrive because it is great for them and it's also great for the thriving of the organisation. It's just like Absolutely. the ultimate kind of it is. how that works philosophy for me. 
Um, and then you just look at the, you know, because there are things that we, you can use the risk um, approach, which is sort of for me a little bit uh, missing the point, or you can sort of use the um, how do we optimise people's well-being and this will lead to greater attraction of talent, retention of talent, but also more, more productivity on the job and less sick days. Let Hopefully, and maybe get your comment on this, like um, absenteeism and presenteeism, mm. both drains on productivity. Um, but I just read recently that uh, pulling a worky is the new pulling a sicky. Yeah. Have you heard this one? No, I haven't. So this is the notion that in the current hybrid work world, um, people are less likely to take sick days and they're more likely to say that they're working but just not actually be working. Yeah. So it's sort of like this is flipped from absenteeism to more presenteeism. Mm-hmm. Interesting, hey? Yeah, look, it is. And I think this is, um, you know, for people or for leaders who are the con- command and control type of leaders, they'll be going, ha-ha, I told you, I told you, I need to see them in the office. <laughs> um, but I think I think what we've got to look at is, well, what are the under- underlying reasons why people are not wanting to work? Yep. Um, why aren't they engaged? Why aren't they, you know, aligned to purpose and meaning? Why aren't they, you know, self-motivated and wanting to contribute? And there might be a whole host of reasons work-related and non-work-related, you know, you might have had a really bad night's sleep because you've got a newborn um, or your animals have kept you up at night or whatever it might be. Combination. Or a combination Mm. of of the above. Um, So we've got to recognise that none of us are going to be, we're not robots, we're none of us going to be optimally productive and well 100% of the time. Oh, yeah. But um, from we could set the container, though, right? Yeah, exactly, and that's uh, that's what um, thriving workplaces actually do: is that they set the container, they provide the policies and the practices, the leadership, the investment in leadership development and capability, the culture, the connectedness opportunities where we do need to come together and have that. Um, you know, there's there's something more meaningful rather than just getting the job done. There's something more meaningful to me about Mm. being part of this team or this organisation. So there's a whole range of, you know, I think, you know, capabilities and and, um, policy environment settings that are within the uh, controls of of an organisation in the first place to set that container right. Um, But, yeah, look, I think people are also bloody fatigued. Oh, how tired are people right now? The last two and a half years has just been um, It's sort of a trauma response almost, I feel. Well, it is. It's a long-term, not in the same way that people might experience real trauma, but um, a pandemic is a traumatic event, but also the crash of the economy that surrounds it, the the, um, loss of social connection. Yeah, I think I I would describe certainly the last two and a half years as traumatic without a doubt. Me too. uh, Because it has impacted admittedly different people in different ways and in different levels of of impact depending on whether you've had work to do and whether it's been good work to do or not. Um, But we've got to recognise that, you know, March 2020, our world changed and it's changed for good and we are still in that um, phase within humanity of being able to readjust to these changes. Um, And there's a lot of uncertainty, economic, you know, the war in Ukraine, um, you know, interest rates going up, all sorts of pressures. Cost face, of living pressures. Cost of living, absolutely. Yep. All of these pressures that are uh, impacting on people and, and their ability to be optimally mentally healthy and optimal in their productivity. Have you ever read um, any of uh, Rutger Bregman's books? No, I haven't. Uh, so The Real Utopia, I think is one of them, and uh, another one is um, Humankind is his oh. more recent one. and. They're really interesting stories just about sort of um, trying times and um, how we often sort of have these ideas that people are inherently selfish and, you know, want to just maximise profit and everything. But he he tells a number of stories around how that's just not true, that people want the best for each other and for themselves and do want to live in a thriving economy and society. And I sort of feel like like this whole paradigm around – making workplaces go back to basics with what motivates people has been a real sea change. Yeah, definitely. And yeah. And, and recognising that emotions are contagious. Yep. So um, I think the other, you know, standout findings over the last couple of years and some of the uh, verbatims has been the 
the, the feedback from people saying, you know, my CEO is now more visible because he's been online or she's been online in their dining room and the kids or the animals have been walking in, you know, they're now real humans. Um, we no longer have just the focus on the hard metric KPI, financial KPIs. We've actually got some metrics around wellbeing being introduced into our workplace. Yeah. So these are the sort of things that I think we've got to just drag into the future and amplify. And uh, our model, positive modelling yeah, as well, I think definitely. is big, like hearing that your CEO is um, unavailable um, between eight and nine because they're doing their school pickups or mm, drop-offs yeah. in the afternoon is inherently so positive mm. uh, and normalising and sort of seeing that leadership response around how, like now that everything has changed, how are people constructing their lives for betterment mm. is an interesting one for me. It is and I think that's what's actually driving the great resignation. Yep. Um I think we've we've got to recognise that people have had this tra- trauma of COVID um, and the impacts of COVID and, and are reassessing their lives um, in what matters most. Yep. How do I want to live? Where do I want to live? What do I want to be doing day by day? What motivates or engages or excites me? And hence we're seeing people choose to move to regional or rural Australia and live lives that are probably slower paced would mm-hmm. be a, um, a fair generic. I went to Dalesford recently. Oh. It's booming. Oh, yeah. That place is on fire. So we might be just translating the, you know, the <laughs> Melbourne madness of, you know, creative, creating that, you know, get to work and all yeah. of that rush. We're, we're in the Silicon Valley of Victoria <laughs> right now and come on just wa- waxing lyrical about uh, <laughs> rural destinations. Yeah. But, I, I mean, my observation is just that, um, like, there is no better time to just move to the coast. Um, if I didn't have such strong family ties and friendship ties in Melbourne and such a Melbourne person, I think I'd be straight out to the coast. Well, I think all of us have, you know, we've been particularly here in Victoria and other states, um, we've been restricted um, in our movements. And Mm. so when you are able to travel, um, you you approach it with fresh eyes and a fresh enthusiasm. Oh, my God. I went to India earlier this year for a, a girlfriend's wedding. How nice. Um, and, a, and a reunion mm. of uh, university um, colleagues and friends. And it was just like I'd never been overseas before. It yeah. was amazing. How liberating is it to, oh, when you get off the plane and you're like, oh, I'm, am I allowed to do this? Am yeah. I allowed to sort of like – because we went to Fiji. As soon as the borders opened, um, Louise and I went to Fiji and she's about six months pregnant at the time and it was just the um, – it wasn't even the sunny season, it was mm. the wet season, but just the excitement of leaving Victoria yeah. was um, outstanding. Yeah, absolutely. Game-changing, perspective-changer. Yeah, and yeah. I think those are the, you know, what is driving people's well-being decisions. You know, everybody who's lived through the last couple of years mm. have ha- has absolutely will have had moments where they've questioned their own mental health and well-being. Yep. And they've questioned it from a sense of, is this does this still feel right? Is this really what I want to be doing or how I want to be doing? And so I think there's um, you know for for many of us who have the luxury of choice, um, there are people who don't, but there are many of us who have the luxury of choice. We've actually been able to hit a reset button yeah. or hit a pause button mm-hmm. or hit a okay, it may not be now, but I'm going to work towards the next couple of years of going and moving and living at the coast yep. or whatever it might be and has have shifted what matters most to us to be much more front and centre as our motivator. Mm. And work used to be mm. uh, for many people, you know, very much at that top of that list, yep. whereas I think the pandemic has enabled more of the relationships and the family time and the, mm. um, you know, our sports and hobbies and, and interests to actually become a bit more centre stage. And with flexibility, I think we can have more of mm. that as well. So Absolutely. I can decide that I want to be um, home for bath time for Marlo, yep. just go home and try and do that and see if I need to log on again and do work. And mm. yeah, it's, it's certainly an interesting um, time for all of that. Reflecting back, I mean, incredible period for you at Super Friends. Is it twelve years? Mm, yeah. And so now in the transition now. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's been an extraordinary organisation. I'm incredibly proud of the work that we collectively. It's a it's a village that's raised the Super Friend child <laughs> um, that we collectively have achieved over that time. And and you know the organisation has just got you know the most terrific potential. How do you how do you how do you like come up like how was a an organisation like Superfriend that's so unique born? It was actually started by an incredible woman, Helen Hewitt, who passed away um, earlier this year. And Helen um, 
had a vision for the industry super funds um, to really lean in together and tackle mental health and suicide. Um, this came about from some early data analysis that was done um, back in 2005, 2006, uh, looking at suicide claims, um, death claims, whether known cause of death was suicide um, and mental health related claims. And the industry... Um, the superannuation industry, of which you do have life insurance as part of that, um, really hadn't done an enormous amount of data analytics um, at the cause of claims. So when it hit the deck um, that a number of the super funds were experiencing really significant claims, and these are members that they genuinely care about, these are people that often they've come from working alongside to coming into working in a trustee office, um, they they thought, well, we've got to be part of the, the societal solution here. So Helen came up with the idea of creating an organisation that was a not-for-profit and separate to the super funds but collectively brought together. Funded by a collection of the super funds? Funded by the insurers, the life insurers yep. that work in supporting and providing life insurance to Australians through their super. Which may, which um, is like such a like shared value kind of clever solution, oh, isn't it? Incredible. Yeah. Um, I mean, she was ahead of her time in so many ways and just such an inspiration. Um, so, yeah, Superfriend came about when uh, the industry funds and their life insurers said we can play an active role here and make a difference. Um, and so uh, it came about um, from that. It was established in 2000, late 2006 and launched in 2007. Um, and I came on board as the CEO in mid-2010. So it had its governance, it's had its partners in place, um, you know, there was a website, there was a few basic um, and, you know, early early thinking about what, what it is we might do. Um, but there was pretty much a blank page uh, when I walked in the door. How um, exciting. The industry knew it wanted to make an impact and make a difference, but it didn't know exactly how uh, to go about it. You know, these are trustees of super funds, not mental health or workplace mental health experts. So we've been on a journey over the last 12 years. And I think what has happened... Um, during that time as we've been able to really achieve significant change inside the superannuation and life insurance industry. Um, mental health is well and truly on the agenda at every single conference. Uh, there is investment in training across the board of staff um, over the industry. Um, there is real commitment uh, to, to really addressing mental health for their customers, for members of their super funds. Um, there's work that's happening inside employers where workers go to, you know, members who go to work every day. So there's an enormous amount of work actually happening through the super funds to benefit their members and workplaces, as well as benefit their staff, knowing mm. that, you know, if if you're going to call in because you're, you, you, you know, you, you can't work and you need to make a claim for mental health, um, that is not a good day for you. So no. having a staff member who's empathetic and compassionate and understanding, mm. as well as being able to walk you through the claim process and, and support you during that time, um, is really, really important. So Superfriend provides much more of that humanistic um, engagement and support for staff in the industry and leave them to do the technical bit. So that's been one major achievement, I think, for, for Superfriend over the last uh, decade plus is to really shift the industry. And it is at the forefront of workplace mental health. You know, it's rated out of our industry, 19 industry, ABS aligned 19 industries, the superannuation, life insurance and financial services is coming in second or third every year. Uh, and I think that's not only Superfriend, clearly, we can't claim that, but it's um, certainly a lot of the work that we've done and the fact that we have, as an industry-owned and supported organisation, um, really enabled um, mental health to be on the agenda. I want to just also add at this point, it's unique. So when I started at Superfriend, I went looking for other similar models that Helen had set up through the industry funds of an industry-funded, not just a once-off funding, but an ongoing funding to benefit their members. So not just their staff, but benefit their members, which is well over half the working population of Australia um, and over 750,000 employers around the country. And there was no other organisation in the world 
that had been set up like that. The closest is an amazing organisation that is is funded by an insurer in Canada, um, and it's funded to do workplace mental health. But it's a um, it, it's not a whole of industry. It's not a collaboration. It's one insurer funding. Whereas the uniqueness of Superfriend is we have twenty four partner industry funds and and the entire Australian life insurance industry funding and supporting the work of Superfriend on an ongoing basis. And it's, it's just amazing. So I'm not surprised. Uh, the uniqueness stood out to me immediately. Um, do you ever have sort of like fights about what you should – because, you know, being member owned and operated pretty much, do you have those sort of – are there ever disagreements about what the focus should be of the the agenda or the work or the, the kind of uh, positions that you take, the research you do? I think there's, I wouldn't describe it as fights. I think there's tensions and the tensions are because there's so much yet to do. Yeah. The tensions are the industry wants to have maximum impact. Um, we worked out long ago that if we were to if we were to work at the treatment end of the spectrum, there was a lot of organisations already in that space. So hence Superfriend evolved into being much more prevention-led and prevention is not well-funded. Oh, people hate funding prevention. Because it's hard to measure. It's long-term and it's systems change work. Doesn't match political cycles. It doesn't match political cycles. Um, And for, you know, commercial organisations of which life insurance businesses are, you know, their contribution, their dollar contribution is not going to return onto a bottom line within Mm. the next quarter or the next year. Mm. So we've had an education and a maturing in the industry to understand that we actually are playing in a different space if we do prevention-led work. Yep. Um, it's a different space also as well because um, government sort of vacated it. Oh, the governments typically don't fund prevention yep. in a in a um, anywhere like it needs to be. I think they pretended to for a while. Mm. Or sort of had some attempts. Um, I think the National Health Prevention Agency was one, but I think um, the appetite and the the political will didn't match the kind of need. Well, well, I think it's also people look to governments to solve the world problems of today and prevention is very much around how do we actually establish a world of tomorrow. So, you know, when you think about mental health, you think about treatment, you think about, um, you know, hospitals and psychology treatment and and those sort of elements and I think that is where government really does need to play. What would be great is some more seed funding upstream but (laughs) I think when you've got an industry that is... Um, that comes together in a collaborative mindset, shared value mindset to help solve societal problems profitably, then Superfriend is a really great example of that. It's a super example of that. (laughs) Excuse the pun. That was a terrible dad joke and um, it just happens naturally now. So let's just forget all about that. (laughs) Um, So, I mean, it's exciting because you you really are, you've done this great research. You're now moving into advisory and consulting in your own um, space, mental health advisory. So what's that like to feel that you've kind of – because, you know, with research, I mean, just for those who are um, maybe less aware, you know, often research is very separate to um, implementation and maybe sometimes they never connect up. So to be in a position to leverage all this kind of amazing, robust research and turn it into advisory uh, recommendations, programs, what's that like? Look, I think um, it's really exciting. I think organisations and workplaces, boards, senior executives are looking for um, tools and support and, and strategic advice to help them navigate the world of workplace mental health and wellbeing. You only need to put into Google, you know, workplace mental health and, you know, a gazillion service providers come up, a gazillion models come up, a gazillion, you know, fact sheets and information and data and so on. So for a lot of organisations, and we've heard this at Superfriend, but also more broadly at the Mentally Healthy Workplace Alliance, we hear this regularly where business is confused, they're overwhelmed, they don't know where to start, they know they want to do something that's meaningful and impactful, but quite frankly, they don't know where to start. Mm -hmm. So for me, the opportunity for Superfriends through its research and through the Thriving Workplace Index tool, which is launching um, to help business not only benchmark against the national results and the the industry results, but give them the actionable insights, Mm -hmm. that opportunity for Superfriend going forward is truly exciting to handhold organisations. Mm. Um, on their journey. For me personally, as I step out of my CEO time at Superfriend and, um, you know, farewell an amazing organisation but will be a champion forever, um, (laughs) 
I'm really excited by the opportunity to take the last 12 years of workplace mental health and then the 10 year prior to that in eating disorders um, and apply that to um, supporting businesses and really guiding them through, you know, mental health, workplace mental health advisory, um, looking at, um, you know, establishing or helping organisations, whether it be through a chief mental health advisory type of role where I can help be strategic working at a board and a senior executive level um, and then amplify the work that's happening within the organisation by the incredible people in work health and safety and wellbeing and so on, um, bring that all together so it actually can be measurable and impactful uh, right through to the board level. And I think that's where we're going. Workers of today are choosing businesses to work for that have meaning and purpose and that translate that meaning and purpose into genuine impact um, in a positive way. You know, the COVID has has certainly turned this into a really optimal time for workplace mental health to stay at the forefront and be really front and centre. Where I think a lot of organisations and boards um, may not yet be mature enough is to link what are they doing in workplace mental health genuinely to their corporate strategy, their mm-hmm. organisational strategy. Yep. So it is front and centre. It drives what they do, particularly for human-led or knowledge-led industries mm. um, where, you know, it's really important that that value proposition to employees is front and centre. And I think we can do that strategically by using things like the indicators of a thriving workplace and what that is telling us, um, other tools that are available, um, risk management tools and other tools to uncover what the challenges are facing particular industries or organisations and really then craft where are they at and what um, an organisation can do that will actually have rubber hitting the road and impact for their people, but more importantly also for their stakeholders, the community and profitability for the organisation. So we're at a really exciting time in workplace mental health. Um, Who would have thought we needed a pandemic to, you know, to bring it to the fore, but we did. Um, and we'll, you know, we'll take that silver lining and use it um, to help organisations very much to to address workplace mental health. Well, and COVID started the fire. Well, and I guess it, it doesn't matter what started the fire, but yep, the yep. fire is burning now. Yeah. I think the other um, thing that I want to add from my own personal curiosity, and I am a naturally curious human, um, is I'm becoming more and more intrigued and I talked about a little bit earlier, but more and more intrigued in bringing together the two complex constructs of productivity and well-being yep. in a meaningful way for for workplaces and organisations. We talked about productivity doesn't happen without well-being, mm-hmm. and well-being in a workplace doesn't happen without good productivity. Yeah, I agree with that. So it's a bipolar relationship. It is. I would actually go to say it's actually an inter interrelated, yep. completely interrelated. Yeah, and. What we do is typically in the wellbeing space, we do the, um, which is nothing wrong with this, but the self-reporting and the self-management and the individual focus quite largely. Okay, it could be a program that we're rolling out across the organisation, but it's very much focused at the individual level. Mm. And when you talk to economists, you know, the productivity end of the spectrum, um, (laughs) you know, they go soft and fluffy. (laughs) When you actually then uncover the economics and the productivity, it's quite often measured in things like GDP and very hard financial, economic and often lag indicator measures. Um, Talking to workplaces and saying, how do you measure productivity? It's usually a fairly blunt instrument that doesn't give them insight. So I am curious as to, and when you talk to the economists and they glaze over with the wellbeing people things, and then you talk to the wellbeing people about the productivity piece, they glaze over or Mm. go, you know, you're actually flogging me and You're wanting speaking more. different languages. You are. Yeah. And I think there's an opportunity as we come emerging through this pandemic, we're not out of it well and truly, but as we are emerging through and rewriting or, or creating the future of work, we've got an opportunity to bring these two complex constructs together in a very useful practical and meaningful way and simple way for organisations. So one of the exciting opportunities I have, you know, as I'm farewelling the world of, of day-to-day super friend um, and stepping into the future is to look at how might we 
go about crafting a framework or a tool or what might lead to organisations and individuals truly being well supported to measure and track that wellbeing and productivity mix within their workplace and knowing it's not going to be static, knowing it's also going to go up and down and that is human nature. Um, but I think for an Australian economy, whether you take it through to the you know federal level of government or at an industry level or at an organisational level, this is what we need to solve too is how do we measure this stuff and then if the measure results in a low score or a low outcome, how do we go about shifting it in a way that balances the head and the heart? Mm. I love the, how you use the head and the heart. I think that's really special and cogent. Um, got a couple more things I want to ask you about before we wrap up. Um, one of them is um, being in this space, it would be remiss of me not to ask you what are your mechanisms for ensuring your own well-being and I can share mine also. Yeah, look, I think uh, they've evolved over years. Um, I would also reflect that um, as I've got older I've become a lot more real with myself um, and a lot more honest with myself as to what really works. I will say many years ago I learned the value of sleep and I've always been a nine, eight to nine hour a night human. If I don't get that, I'm not very good. Um, so sleep has always been at the top of my list and yep. it would remain there. Um, I think physical activity is also something that is incredibly important. Um, what do you do? What's your... Look, part of the reason of getting a dog is to be able to get out and, and walk every day. I have a girlfriend that I walk with several mornings a week, which is awesome. Um, and she good value? She, she, is, she is good value. We're yeah. intellectually um, quite well aligned good. and... Um, yeah, she, she teaches me stuff all the time. You know, she uses words I've never heard and I go, oh, yeah, stop, can you please play, play the dictionary of that word now, please? Um, so, yeah, no, it's a great, it's a great friendship. Um, but there's also, for me, there's also things like gardening um, and, you know, as, a, as more of an introvert, you know, that time alone, that solace time. But it's also things like reading um, and I'm a big lover of audio books. Um, I'm not a very, I, I don't slow down and settle and, and stop. I'm not that type of person. I do like to be active and move. You're what I call a moving person. I am a moving person yeah. and my body tells me I need to move. Yeah. I probably should never have done office work. I should have been on a farm <laughs> or something like that. But anyway, um, you, I you're, digress. You're essentially like a, a wanderer who has um, made the CEO roll her own. <laughs> So, you know, so, so there's nothing quite like for me a you know, Sunday where the weather's great and uh, I've got an audio book going on and Just I'm in the garden. All day. And I'm in the garden yeah, yeah, or something like that. I can really relate to that. Um, so green spaces, natural plants, beautiful environments um, are really, really important. Weekends away, holidays, family and friends obviously is really, really important. Mm. Um, and for me it's a close group of really close friends and family yep. versus the massive extensive, you know, friendship group. Um, so those are the things that I put into play. A few years ago, um, I gave up alcohol um, and I have not looked back. I think um, I function as a human much better. Mm. Uh, I wake up clearer. Um, yeah, there's just physiologically it wasn't agreeing with me as I'm, I was getting I'm older. I'm on your wavelength. Uh, I mean, I was really pleased to see that you did accept a coffee this morning because I was going to say you don't <laughs> want you to be too puritanical no. and get rid of all the good vices. But. <laughs> Um, so, you know, it's probably actually, you know, the one thing that I do sort of overindulge in maybe is a, is a coffee or two. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of fundamental basics that are just in my day to day, water and hydration, mm -hmm. healthy eating. I love cooking, but I love cooking from the ground up. Um, and I very rarely do takeaways and those sort of things. I just, because I love that process, that creative process of cooking, uh, rarely use recipes. I just get in there and mm. create. Um, so there's all of those sort of things. And then from time to time, it's the um, indulging in the arts, like, you know, music festivals or concerts and, um, you know, theatre and those sort of things, um, seeing people, you know, who do things that I can't do and that's perform, you know, on stage and that sort of stuff. So, yeah, there's a lot of things that go into helping me stay well. Mm. Um, I will um, absolutely say that, you know, anxiety is something that is is part of my life. Uh, depression comes and goes from time to time. Mm. Um, but it's you know, it's working hard every day. Yeah, it is, isn't and it? And it's habit stacking. It's making sure I've got things in play, um, meditation before I go to sleep. Those are the sort of things in play. All the tools in the toolkit. Absolutely. That become part of my day-to-day -to -day routine. Um, 
I will also say with COVID and working from home, what I have absolutely benefited from is the non-rush in the morning. Oh, yeah. So being able to get up and go for a walk with a great friend of mine and my dog and her dog and stop for a coffee um, and really enjoy the you know, the sunrise and the freshness and the Christmas of the air, um, the beautiful greenery and the parks that we walk through is just amazing. Whereas, you know, getting into the office by 8am, the rush, the, on the train, da 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 um, I think I would reflect that that has actually been worse for my anxiety than actually the, the way that I start my days these days. Yeah, so, that's so well said and a really good snapshot. I mean, like I, I think it's all about knowing what your things are that mm. keep you well. Like uh, throughout my life I've um, uh, sort of grappled at times with depression and sort of still, um, you know, I've had a couple of episodes in my time and um, it's very important for me to try and think about the things that I need to do to stay well. Mm. Um, maybe not everyone has to think about that, but it's kind of one of the silver linings of having your underlying mental illness that you do focus a lot on um, positive things that make you, you know, thrive. Um, and for me, it's you know, it's been a real process of trying to figure out what do I need to do each day and each week to get there. Yep. And um, you know, one of them is intense physical activity. Yep. Uh, called exercising the demons. Yep. Or exercising the demons. You know, yep. however you prefer to play the pun. But uh, yeah, really um, heavy workout routine once a day seems to change everything in terms of my perspective. Yep. Because I sort of believe as well that the, you know the hardest thing that you do that day is the hardest thing you do that day. Yep. So you can have a lot going on yep. at work or at home or whatever. But if you smash yourself in the gym um, or in a run or whatever it is. Um, that's harder yep. in a way. Yep. And if, once you've got through that, you have this sort of like reverse and forward resilience or this belief that you can overcome anything that's going on at the moment. Yep. So for me, that's huge. That's mm. been the biggest game changer. I think um, being in a place like the Commons has been a huge game changer. Um, actually, during COVID, I went through a pretty um, difficult period, uh, sort of a year-long um, depressive spell. I was still able to work, thank God, and family as well, and nothing happened. Um, but it was just quite a delicate time, but um, certainly being able to come into this space um, and be in a communal space where it wasn't isolated at home made a huge difference. So for me, that's also a protective factor. Um, I do um, saunas fairly regularly. I find they make a huge difference. And greenery and getting into nature for me is really important. Um, the last thing I'd say that fills my cup up um, immensely is conversations like these. Oh, great. So just um, the ability to remove myself from my own context um, and think more broadly and in different sort of time space, sort of just get out of myself and be in the moment. So yeah. Beautiful. I, yeah. what, one of the things you've said around that, um, you know, looking for the positive, looking for the optimal, I would absolutely reflect on that. I should have added that. I've worked really hard on myself over the years to become an overflowing cup human. Um, <laughs> you mentioned that in your podcast yeah, form. Yeah, um, that, you know, it to me this is about the what's possible. This yep. is why I wanted to go and study um positive change and how to lean into positive change um, with a what's possible lens versus the risk mindset, I guess. Um, And really looking, you know, gratitude journals and those sort of things that I've done from time to time over my life, um, but really looking for, you know, how might we go about, you know, how do we get the best out of those sort of questions, that sort of optimistic can do, will do, I think has made an enormous difference to my mental health. Um, and I've worked really hard at it. Um, I remember somebody telling me once, you know, at a, at a bit of a jibe, you are just way too optimistic. And I thought, thanks, I'll take that. <laughs> well, what's the alternative? Well, it, well, to me, the, um, you know, for a lot of people, the alternative is a much more realistic view. And for, for me, in a workplace, you need that you need people who are really good at the mm. realistic the you know we can deliver this in this time frame yep. but you also need the optimistic the visionary and that's what i am in totally. my leadership is is very much a aspirational aspirational visionary leader what could be and i think you know i mean it does 
it changes everything. I mean, and I think if you focus on um, noticing what is good about things rather than focusing on what is bad about things, that is so protective. Mm. Um, and I, I think it changes everything in your space. So certainly that's another one that I think is um, really important. And, and you often will see people who are struggling are focusing a lot more on the negatives than the mm. positives, which is sort of maybe a cognitive um, flip back. But um, we can all do more of the, the positive thinking as well. Well, our brains are flexible and willing, you know, we're, we're actually wired to learn um, if we tune in. So. What I was going to say is it's also thinking about what serves you better yeah. as a person. So are you going to have a better life and better outcomes for yourself and your family and your friends noticing the good or focusing on the bad? Well, you think about also when you interact with somebody and they give you a compliment, yeah. how, how great it feels. Yeah. Um, or when you do observe something um, that they may not have observed in themselves and you're able to feed that forward to mm. them. So I think that there's, uh, you're right, there's there's tremendous opportunities um, if we do flip what we sometimes think as, you know, it might be a, a problem-oriented statement yeah. or a problem and um, we flip it into the it's possible. Wow. I love it. What a nice place to um, park the bus. So I do want to hear, um, you know, we, we've talked a bit about what's coming next. How can people get in touch with you and learn a bit more about your next venture and your work, both at Superfriend and also Mental Health Advisory? Well, certainly um, the work at Superfriend is ongoing. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I said, I'll be a champion forever and a day. Um, so jump on the website, superfriend.com.au, uh, reach out to the team, have a chat to them. Um, there's some terrific tools, resources, training. Obviously, the workplace indicator uh, survey results are available. And um, you can have a chat to the team about the tool for businesses as well. So very much encourage you to reach out to the team. If you want to get in touch with me, if you're interested in having a chat about um, how I might be able to help your organisation, then certainly feel free. I'll be launching my new website this weekend. Um, So, uh, yeah, it will be under the domain of workplacementalhealthadvisory.au. Using a a bottom line dot au? Well, I am. It's very exciting. It is. Um, So you can reach out to me at margot at au, and that's margot without a T because I drink enough of it. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I've really enjoyed this. Thank you so much for being with me this morning. Oh, it's been terrific to join you and, and lovely to meet you in person. Uh, lovely to share the, the commonalities of good friends that we actually um, have established we know. Yeah, should we, should we, we do know? a little shout out? Oh, yeah, Ben, Ben Schaefer. Uh, just <laughs> fantastic. Um, we just discovered that. So a bit of a shout out for you, Ben. That's, You're an awesome is... human. I love that connection. It was just like, <laughs> who is the only person I know who worked at Seabus? <laughs> yeah. Who is the only person who would have the, the sort of kind of um, cojones to do that kind of funny message? And yeah. then just like it was yeah. obviously Schaefer. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah, yeah it's amazing. So it's been great. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Take care. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player and why not share it with a friend or two? If you want more from your Humans of Purpose experience, become a Humans of Purpose member today through our new platform, Supercast. All you need to do is hit the link in our show notes. If you have a message to share with our audience about your brand, products, or services, we have a wide variety of paid promotional packages available. Please get in touch by hitting the link in our show notes.